Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I had the gift of working with Ben Rhodes for years when he worked as a national security aide and speechwriter to President Obama. Years we covered back in 2016 on an Axe Files episode, but we had a great reunion of sorts the other day to talk about the traveling and thinking Ben's done since and the conclusions he's drawn, which he shares so eloquently in his new book, After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made. Here's that conversation. Ben Rhodes, my friend, it's always good to see you. I relish the time we got to spend together in 2007 and 8 and 9 and 10. Yeah. And the last time we sat down to do uh, one of these podcasts, you had just finished your memoir. But in a way, this new book that you've written after the fall, being an American in the world we've made, is an even more authentic kind of search for yourself, yeah. <laughs> for an honest assessment of who we are. And weirdly, for a guy who traveled for eight years relentlessly, you decided to travel in order to figure this all out. So talk a little bit about the book and what motivated you. Well, look, it's, it's always good to talk to you. Uh, it'd be great to see you in person like uh, everybody else. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you, I'm glad you picked it up. It's more personal in a way than my memoir. Um, in part, that's because acts, to be honest, like I wrote the memoir so fast that I still had like the government officials voice in my head, you know, um, I'm just being honest, you know, uh, yeah. I, I didn't think that, but this one, I really had to find my own voice as someone who's no longer in government or, or even in a way in politics. And to me, it started from a pretty traumatic place, right? The 2016 election happens. I've been on this ride for 10 years. You know, I met you in 07. And, and right. candidly, you know, I was kind of a kid. I was 29 years old. And I'm spit out on the other end of that a decade later. So I'm spit out on the other end of that experience after Trump's election. And nothing you know, made sense. Nothing felt normal. Not only had everything I've worked on been essentially attacked by this person who is seeking to dismantle it, um, but also around the world, all the things that I believed in you know, seemed to be headed in the wrong direction just about everywhere. And I didn't know that I was going to take this approach until I started to travel for, for various reasons. I, I traveled with our former boss um, and his initial trips after the presidency. I traveled um, with Jake Sullivan, who's now National Security Advisor, to, to Burma to help out with a, the, the fledgling peace process at that time. And, and I just started to realize that in a strange way, what was happening in America made more sense to me when I looked at it from abroad. Um, it's like being in a, in a family that has some problems and, and you have to talk to people outside the family to, to see what's happening clearly. And, and what I found in talking to these Hungarian activists, um, 
who were you know, opposed to Viktor Orban, the autocratic prime minister there, to Russians in opposition to, to President Putin there, to Hong Kong protesters. Was this kind of building sense that the same thing was happening everywhere? You know, this drift towards authoritarianism, nationalism, this kind of us versus them politics uh, turning uglier and uglier, um, and just a general sense of things moving in the wrong direction. And I felt that I came to understand what was happening in America and myself better um, by taking these last few years and, and just trying to talk to people around the world about how they saw it. Anybody who, uh, who wants to, to hear in depth your personal story, there's, you know, that can go back to the other Axe Files, but I think it's worth reviewing uh, just a little bit of it because you and I share some things. We share a passion for the American ideal and a belief in it. I mean, I wrote a book called Believer, and that's what it was about. But I confess that I assume too much. Yeah. So, I mean, your folks, uh, you, you write a little bit about them again in this book. Your mother's a progressive Jew from New York. Your father, a conservative Christian from Texas. You and your brother, your brother David Rhodes, was president of CBS News, spent nine years working for Roger Ailes. You sort of peeled yeah. in different directions. Yeah, yeah. But but I think it's fair to say that you had a and have, but you you had this deep belief, as I do, in the fundamental ideals that we consider American ideals, that we considered the core of American exceptionalism. You argue in this book that we drifted from those ideals. Yeah. You say uh, the, you, you use the line of demarcation, the fall of the Soviet Union, which sort of defined post-war geopolitics. So talk a little bit about that, why that was the line of demarcation. Well, I, I really think that a lot of what's happening in the world and in this country, right, is a question of identity. What does it mean to be American? And, and I found in other places, what does it mean to be Russian? What does it mean to be Chinese? These are the contested battlegrounds of politics in the world today. Whereas in the 20th century, the contest, contested battlefields were ideology. It was communism and democracy and fascism earlier than that. And what I think, you know, occurred to me is that in the Cold War, our national identity and certainly our place in the world was entirely tied up in the Cold War, in that project. And you know, my kind of political awakening as an American and in my household, America was kind of a secular religion. You know, we had we had two religions, Judaism and Christianity, but the secular religion was America. And that was tied up in the Cold War. I mean, my first political consciousness was you know, in pop culture, it was Rocky IV, but in, in, in politics, it was you know, Ronald Reagan standing up to the evil empire, and then this seemingly inevitable triumph of the right ideas, um, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union, this idea that the big questions have been settled. Um, and to me, that, that is a demarcation point in the sense that America achieved this point of preeminence in the world really unparalleled in history, I think. Um, but we, we never really agreed on what the next big project was. You know, <laughs> what did it mean to be American after the Cold War? And each of these places I looked at, Hungary, Russia, and China, are places where the story didn't turn out the way we thought it would. You know, in Hungary, the idea was that this was all settled. Hungary was now in the democratic camp. In Russia, it was the idea that the Soviet Union collapsed, Russia would turn to democracy. In China, I think a lot of Americans just assumed that while you had Tiananmen Square, Inevitably, as China opened up, uh, it would become more democratic. And that's not what happened at all. You know? And I think that 
we have to wrestle as Americans with this question of why did the last 30 years not turn out that way? Instead of it being the end of history and the idea that democracy had triumphed, we're in a worse place now in a lot of ways in terms of democratic trends in this country and around the world than we were in 1990. And that was a period in which America called a lot of the shots. And so part of what I wanted to wrestle with is, is how did we get, get from, from there, there to here? How do we get from 1990 to, to 2020, which was kind of, to many of us felt like a low point, but you know, that remains to be determined. We have to discuss that before we leave this podcast, because I think people are looking for the clearing, the, the light in the distance, you know, and how to march uh, in that direction. The short answer to your question, reading your book, is hubris. We were the hegemonic power in the world, unquestioned and unrivaled. And there was a certain hubris associated with that, that people would follow our lead, as you point out. And I remember when you and I traveled to, I think you, you, you must have been there because this was your portfolio, but when we were in Russia in 2009 and uh, President Obama went to see Vladimir Putin, who was the prime minister then, and I was the beneficiary of this because he was also supposed to meet with Mikhail uh, Gorbachev, and he was an hour late because Putin had so much to disgorge. Yeah. Most of it was grievances about how the West had treated Russia in the post-Soviet period, or at least as Obama related that, that the first hour of that conversation to me. But there were assumptions made that all of these Eastern European nations would join NATO and yeah. become part of the Western alliance. This belied some of the forces within their own countries, but it certainly was threatening to Russia and to Putin. It seemed like a direct challenge to him. Was that a mistake? Yeah. I mean, I, just to take the Russia piece of this story, I recalled actually in the book, I started the Russia section of this book by recalling a trip I made when I was kind of young and traveling around. And uh, I was in Kaliningrad, a Russian city that borders Poland and boarded a night bus to go to Poland from Kaliningrad. And there were, the everyone else on the bus pretty much was an older woman carrying giant shopping bags full of cartons of cigarettes and vodka. And when we got to the border, all of these women, they ran, they ran away from the border checkpoint. And what they were trying to do was dash into Poland where they could sell cigarettes and vodka on the black market to make enough money to come back to Kaliningrad. And I remember thinking at the time, like the intensity of the humiliation, where you go from being a superpower of USSR to those women running into the darkness. And, you know, that stuck with me, how angry that must make people. And Alexei Navalny, who I talked to for this book, you know, described to me being a child. And he was raised, you know, from the opposite end of the corner as me. He thought the USSR was the greatest country in the world and was inevitably going to triumph in the Cold War. That's what he thought. And he described the humiliation of getting. West German army rations sent to him when he was a kid and what it felt like to think that one minute, you know, you're a Soviet pioneer is the word he used and you're a citizen of the greatest country in the world. And the next minute you're getting rations from Germany, the country that you defeated in World War II. That sense of anger and humiliation that was present after the end of the Cold War in Russia, that's what Putin ended up tapping into. Putin weaponized that. He weaponized it, whether we meant to or not. We compounded that in some of our decisions. So we swallowed up into NATO a whole bunch of Eastern, the entire Eastern Bloc, basically, uh, in Eastern Europe, but then also even several Soviet republics in the Baltics. And then also, importantly, you know, we supported the kind of wholesale privatization of the Russian economy in the 90s, where essentially, think about it, the, the state owned everything, and then they sold it off in these auctions. 
And as Navalny explained to me, all you saw if you were Russian were all these you know, oligarchs, as they're called, becoming billionaires while ordinary people are getting screwed. And I think, you know, you can, you can think that capitalism is the right answer, and I think it is compared to, to socialism, communism. But I think we kind of assumed it would just work itself out, you know, um, and it didn't in Russia because what ended up happening is you had the humiliation at the end of the Cold War, you had a sense of grievance on how that ended, and then you had a, a sense that the, the new system was screwing everybody in just a different way than the old system. And Putin kind of in, ingeniously both tapped into that humiliation and sense of grievance. And profited from it and greatly. And profited from it because all yes. his buddies from the, the KGB knew how to get their hands on the state assets. And that was the kind of starting point of his politics when he came to power around 2000. And he's basically been waging a war against the American-led order ever since. Uh, Navalny is on everyone's mind now. And you, 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 as you were writing this, you had a wonderful conversation with him that you share several pages of, of which in this book. But you note that while, while you were writing it, he was poisoned by Putin. And what you get from the conversation you had with Navalny was something that I didn't fully understand. I thought of him as a, someone fighting for democracy in Russia. I knew he was fiercely anti-corruption. But the nationalist dimension of his politics was not as clear to me. And that, in some ways, may be why he was so threatening to Putin. It wasn't just that he was shining a light on the corruption, but he also was doing it in the context of a nationalist message of his own that took from Putin one of his most potent weapons. So, for example, Navalny told you that he did not believe that Russia should give Crimea back to Ukraine. And he explained to you why that was. And I thought, just as a practitioner, I thought, this is a really smart guy. I mean, yes. he he knew what he was doing, and Putin obviously feared that as well. Yeah, I had the sense in talking to Navalny, this is a politician who could become president of Russia if he had any bit of an opening, because, you know, he described himself to me as the son of the military towns outside of Moscow. That's that's his background. That's what his uh, his family did. And, you know, his his whole argument essentially is, you can be a nationalist, but not be for corruption, you know, um, and, and be for a system in which the best person rises to the top. And he tapped into a lot of the same grievances that Putin did, but then he added to it the grievances of Russians who were frustrated by Putin's own corruption and the corruption of his own circle. And so, you know, he, he had a very distilled, you know, if people read the book, this incredibly potent political message that, you know, we can be a great country and we can reassert ourselves without any of that stuff. And by that stuff, he he means the corruption, the the kleptocracy, kleptocracy, right? And and one of the things I did find in in kind of reporting and researching this book is the degree to which kleptocracy is central to this. Because autocrats like Putin don't have, it's not a big ideology behind it. Putin's not a communist. Um, uh, Neither is Viktor Orban, who I talk about in Hungary. Like, Frankly, the Chinese Communist Party isn't particularly communist. They're more than happy to profit off of capitalism. And, and so the critique that Navalny had, I think, is one that is very potent in Russia, but also perhaps very potent elsewhere, which is um, really an anti-corruption argument that doesn't ask people to kind of reject their sense of Russian identity that Putin tapped into, but that does say to them, hey, look, this doesn't have to be um, inconsistent with having a system that is free of corruption and that abides by the rule of law. And, and he was getting real traction in Russia. And, and he said to me, look, I, I think if I had an election, I could beat these guys. And he said, I'm not interested in being a dissident. You know, I'm not someone who just wants to kind of 
be exiled. And, and what was interesting to me is that- He also said, by the way, that he thought he was famous and therefore he might be insulated from the worst of Putin's uh, revenge. And he said it was it's the more rank and file leaders of our movement that he worried about. Well, he was obviously wrong about that. Putin tried to kill him. He is, you know, that he was shipped to Germany. He recovered and returned yeah. and immediately was jailed. And we know that he, from all reports, you know, he's in desperate shape. Yeah. I mean, the tragedy is like he said to me, look, I have an organization. He had dozens of offices across the country. We're working. We're building a political movement. Uh, we're we're out functioning in some ways as investigative journalists exposing corruption in incredibly innovative ways. And he told me, look, I, I'm afraid, of course, he said, when the cell door closes behind you, and this is kind of an eerie thing that's stuck in my head from our conversation. He's like, when the cell door closes behind you, you know they can do anything to you. Um, but he still felt compelled uh, to keep doing what he's doing. And I remember even after he was poisoned and in Germany, I was kind of texting with him. And, and he had all this bravado. And he was clearly going to go back to Russia. And I think he, he knew he was going to be imprisoned. But Part of the tragedy of what's happened is now they imprisoned him, mistreated him, and he almost died recently in prison. But they've also kind of rolled up his organization. And right in the run-up, even to the Biden summit, they, they deemed it an extremist organization, like designating a terrorist organization, essentially. Um, so you know, to me, that shows you that Putin knows this guy is a real threat. You know, um, Putin sensed the potency of the, that political message as much as you did. I think the one other thing I, I wanted to just you know throw out their acts for you is that I do this thing in the book where I, I look back at the summer of 2004. Putin gave a speech in which he essentially distilled his whole worldview, that the real tragedy was the collapse of the Soviet Union. And he has this incredible line where he says, you know, we were weak and the weak are beaten. And, and, and the whole point is that that's the starting point for a lot of the autocracy in Russia, because weakness in his view was the state giving up too much control. And so he started appointing governors after that and kind of taking over the machinery of the state and going on offense against the U.S. and the West. And the same summer, Barack Obama gives his convention speech, yeah. which is kind of the opposite, diametrically opposed view of politics. It's that people of different ethnicities, races, backgrounds can, can come together in a democracy. And I, I do feel like Putinism and Obama re represent kind of the two opposing poles of politics in the world today. Listen, uh, my message to the students I work with and anybody I talk to is that democracy is a constant struggle between cynicism and hope. Yeah. And Putin is the ultimately cynical person. His worldview is incredibly cynical, and it's very much uh, tuned to Trump's. Yeah. It is this idea that the world is actually the Hunger Games, that there are no rules or laws or institutions that one needs to heed and that those who do are suckers, and yeah. that the, the strong win, the, yeah. those who take what they want, win. And that's how Donald Trump ran his business career, which yeah. for which he may pay a penalty uh, soon, we'll see. Uh, and that's how he tried to run the United States government and how he positioned America in the world. And it's really stark when you read this and when you think about it. Yes, there are two opposing viewpoints. And Ben, as you read your book, we all know history tends to work cyclically. And right now, autocracies are on the rise. Nationalism is on the rise. Democracies are struggling. Pluralism under attack. It's a difficult time. Yeah. And, you know, to, to your point about Putin, you know, Balney said to me, look, Putin doesn't have to prove to people that he's not corrupt. 
he just has to prove that everybody is, you know, like that, 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 you know, that to make people cynical and apathetic, you know, he, his argument is, is, is not that his system is perfect. It's just that, look, see, Americans are just as corrupt as we are, you know, and, and Navalny said, like, when someone like Trump gets to the top of that system, it's the ultimate validation of Putin's point. Um, and, and that to me is why the, the real answer to this challenge we're in, in this, this very precarious moment we're in, is getting our own house in order, you know, disproving that argument, you know, and, and in a way, America in the title of the book is after the fall, like we've fallen in a lot of ways, we've lost a lot of the luster we had around the world for reasons that we all know. And in some ways, I think what Putin wanted to do is turn America into its worst version of itself, you know, and he's got tools, we should point out that help him do that. Because just as he's try, he's more and more tried to control media in his own country, he's used social media Yes. In our own country to sow division, to pour kerosene on the fire. And uh, when you and I were serving together, I I remember the debate in 2012 when President Obama was kind of dismissive of Mitt Romney when he Romney talked about Russia as a major threat. And Obama said, you know, their hobbled economy, uh, you know, there's they're they're weighted down by corruption. But. Putin has found a tool of destruction that is cheaper and more effective than the nuclear weapons he could never use. Yeah. And in a way, you know, he hacked the American order in order to destroy it. And I focus on these three areas. And if you look at the three areas where I think the excesses of America in the world, you know, had negative consequences. And there's a lot of positives in America in the world, too, which we can get to. But the um, you know, one is capitalism, right? Uh, and the kind of unregulated brand of capitalism that kind of washed over the world. And Putin hacked that, right, to enrich all these cronies and oligarchs who then finance his politics and basically built this kleptocracy that can exist in the global economy that, that America has led. Then the post 9-11 kind of militarism of American foreign policy, this kind of belligerent us versus them approach to things that led to the Iraq war well, Putin hacked that too. He said, well, if you can invade Iraq, you know, in total disregard for national opinion, I can invade Georgia in 2008 or Ukraine in 2014. There, there are no rules, as you said. And, and America had proven him right in his view with what we did after 9-11 in a lot of ways. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. As I was reading your book, and I have the advantage of being older than you and disadvantage of being older than yes. you. But, um, uh, you know, I was thinking about my own childhood uh, and the escapades of the United States that weren't uh, as uh, evident. Yeah. But, you know, we were involved in assassinations uh, you know, uh, we we were uh, involved in uh, uh, propping up of autocrats, um, because it, all in the name of anti-communism. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you worked on trying to normalize relations with Cuba. Yeah. You know that the the regimen you were trying to change. Yeah. Uh, began in uh in the sixties, and uh, you know the, the 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 Cuban leader before Castro was uh was a uh, was a, a brutal autocrat yeah uh, and we supported that uh, that autocrat you know we've we, there I mean I listen I, I don't want this to be a beat down on the United States yeah. of America because I I, I still think uh, that 
you know, the people you spoke with uh, all over the world are fighting for what we have. Yeah. And, and in fact, you know, what was striking to me, you wrote in your book that even as they were, even as China was cracking down on the on Hong Kong and uh, and Navalny was uh, lying in, in, in trying to recover from the poisoning and all of these, everyone was looking to the U.S. to the election in 2020 because there was there was a concern that if democracy faltered here. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, I don't want to overdo the, but I'm just saying that, we, you know, the, there was a longer history than just the last 30 years of the U.S. in pursuit of its strategic interests, doing things that were inconsistent with our stated values. Yeah, I guess I put it this way, you know, and because the, and the third excess, right, is, is the creation of this kind of unregulated social media, which becomes the perfect tool of disinformation for Putin or surveillance for China. And, and look, America's never been perfect or pure in our foreign policy or what we do in the world. Um, I do think, you know, I had this experience where I was looking at, uh, I described in the book, being in China and looking at the Shanghai skyline. And, and I'd had this kind of creepy experience of being woken up in my hotel room by some Chinese officials yes. warning me that Obama shouldn't meet with the Dalai Lama, which was particularly uh, eerie because we hadn't announced the meeting, <laughs> yes. basically announced yeah. it yeah. In, in my email or something. I mean, the, the yeah. message there was, we know, okay? we know, we know what you're doing. We know you have no secrets from us. You have no secrets from us. And we don't care that the guy down the hall from you who you're traveling here with, you know, was recently the most powerful man in the world. But I'm looking at the Shanghai skyline and it looks like the future. And it represents this enormous achievement, by the way, of lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in China, which was impossible without the American created order. So the kind of achievement of that. It looks like the future, right? Like there's lights everywhere. There are people taking selfies with selfie sticks. And I did think to myself, though, that there's something logical about it in the sense that if you take a, a capitalism, mania for national security and technology, um, and you just strip all the democracy out of it, you kind of get what I was looking at. You get the, the handoff from America to Chinese leadership in the world. and I think that in the Cold War, as many mistakes as we made, Vietnam, support for autocrats, there was this framework in which democracy was at the top of the, like we, we had to, like Trump never could have become president during the Cold War. It was too important that America right. put on a certain face. Yes. The civil rights movement in many ways, I think it's underappreciated. The Cold War was a part of why we had a civil rights movement, right? It, because essentially we, yes. we, had to, we had to combat our hypocrisy at home. And so I do think if you look at the last 30 years, and, and I've wrestled with this in looking at the China relationship, democracy has not been as big a priority in the world as national security, making money, and developing new technology for the United States. I think we have to be honest about that. Nor has it been here in the United States. In the United States, like it's been about making money, developing new technologies, and national security. And, and so to me, there is something intangible that we kind of lost a, gr a grasp of. And I I'd like to think that in the Obama years, we were trying to get that grasp back. But I think if we're, we're honest and we look at this stretch of time, we have to recognize that we have to make democracy the number one issue again. It's more important than the economy. It's more important than national security. It's more important than developing the new technology here. Because once it drifts down as a kind of second tier issue, um, well, you know, you can make a lot of money and develop a lot of new technology and have national security without democracy. It just looks like China. 
And it looks like what, what encroached on those people in Hong Kong who I write about, who, who by the way, they were prosperous. They didn't want that. <laughs> they, they, they could have opted into the Chinese model, said, oh yeah, that's fine. We can be rich and we'll sign up with you guys. They want it out because they want to think for themselves. I think that the common state of nature of human beings is to want to be free, but th that freedom is not a guarantee. And I just think America, in, in, in an intangible way, not any one president, I think we collectively kind of deprioritized that after the Cold War. And there's kind of a linkage between the Chinese project and the Russian project yeah. right now, because what China is saying to the world is democracy is hopelessly frayed yeah. and uh, incapable of moving at, in an agile way to do the things that are necessary to be competitive in the 21st century. And we have the model. You know, we are ruthlessly efficient. Yeah. And we have the model. And so, you know, when Biden went to London for the G7 and lifted up democracy and the struggle really as much with China as any 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 other country i mean there was the russian overtones as or undertones as well i mean that's that's true the question is you know i mean i don't speak to as many actors overseas as you do but what i constantly get is we really like what biden is saying and we want America to be America or our yeah. best, I, uh, the best version of America. But we we're, we're and we're not worried about him. We're worried about Americans. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I yeah, the way I put that axis is like I, in, the, in all these years of traveling around, talking to people around the world, government officials, activists, ordinary citizens in other places. It wasn't just the fact that Trump was president that concerned them. It's the fact that we elected Trump president um, that, that that came out of the United States. And I think the challenge that Biden has and could and elect could him favorite. or someone else like him again. And they watch the spectacle on January 6th. Yeah. They watch the way in which Republican leaders have uh, many of many of the Republican leaders have failed to step up on, you know, fundamental issues of democracy. And they worry. Yeah. Yeah, they worry and, and, and they worry for utilitarian reasons, like do we want to negotiate a bunch of stuff with the Americans again, only to have it torn up? But they also worry more intangibly about democracy. And what's interesting about Biden acts, and, 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 and I think you would uniquely understand this, like he talks a lot about the need for democracy to deliver, um, which is exactly right. Yes. That the Chinese can do these big things. Right. That we have to do big things to show Goes to the heart of their argument. Yeah. But it's not the whole story in the sense that the more harder and intangible thing, and I say this with great respect and sympathy for the people in government, right? I, I, I relate in the book how Obama talked about America being an ocean line. It takes a while to turn yes. it around and point in a new direction. And I think we did do that in government. But what's harder is kind of fixing the ocean liner, you know, like not just pointing it. Yeah, you said, you said the ocean liner is taking on water. It's taking on issue. water, right? And, and, and so to me, it's like, we have to prove that democracy can deliver. But if democracy delivers for two years, and Biden does all these great things. But then, you know, this effort to kind of entrench minority rule moves forward. And then, you know, the election is kind of uh, rigged in the other direction in 2024. Like, it doesn't matter that democracy delivered because right. it, we may not have a democracy anymore. So what's so hard for them, and I'm so sympathetic to them, is democracy delivering is only half the, the project. Um, there's this other project, which, by the way, is not all on President Biden or the incredibly capable people around him. It's on all of us to show that not only can democracy deliver, but democracy is something that people will defend um, at every level of society um, in private sector, activists, citizens. And, and I think that 
like the, the opportunity in that though, Axe, is that America is now in many ways in the eyes of the world like, like anybody else. We can have the corrupt autocrat with the son-in-law down the hall. We can have the mobs store the parliament. The opportunity in that is if we can fight through that and, and, and we can preserve our democracy and make it stronger, it's much more, I think, powerful as an example around the world than America like sitting up you know, on top of a mountain and giving lectures about democracy to people. We have to do the showing here. So it's, it's delivering, but it's also you know, regenerating itself. It has to happen. Yeah, you talked about the civil rights movement as partly as a consequence of the need of the country in the midst of a propaganda struggle around yeah. the world to, to actually live its ideals. Um, and uh, that, that, seems, uh, that seems equally important. Now, you know, I, uh, you know, on Navalny, we issued the proclamations about Navalny. The question is, uh, you know, what, what tangible things can or will we uh, do about you write in the book, and we should talk about because it's central to your own journey. Uh, the forever wars and the war in Iraq. Yeah. Uh, the, the, you know, nine eleven was what drew you uh, yeah. to Washington in the in the first place. But the forever wars are they have undermined America in so many ways in the yeah. eyes of the world. And um, by the way, just parenthetically, well, let's get into it because where yeah. I was going with this was we support. I mean, you talk about the Arab Spring yeah. uh, and that moment, that, that inspiring moment in your book. But now we support Sisi in Egypt, who, um, who staged a military coup. We talk about Khashoggi in, yeah. in Saudi Arabia, but, but we still, for strategic reasons, we still, you know, so, so the question is, and I want to ask you this as someone who's been inside and someone who's outside. Where do you draw these lines? Where do you make the where do you make decisions that are you know how do you make the choice between what is strategically important and what is consistent with our ideals, or 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 is it strategically important to be consistent with our ideals? Well, this gets to the kind of like you know I think one of the more provocative critiques I was trying to make in the book, and I tell the story to illustrate it of this guy Muhammad Sultan. Yes, who, moving. Yeah, he moved from Ohio, you know, in Ohio State, and he's Egyptian-American. He moves back there for Tahrir Square. He's there when Mubarak is ousted. He's so overjoyed, he stays in Egypt. Um, then two years later, when there's a coup that brings Sisi to power, that ousts Mercy, he's shot. He's in prison. They mock him with his American passport. This isn't going to save you. They torture him in really gruesome ways. Then the, he's in a prison cell, they let an ISIS recruiter into the jail cell. Right. And the ISIS recruiter is literally there debating him and saying nonviolent resistance won't work because Mohammed Sultan was on a hunger strike at the time. And he's debating him saying, no, 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 nonviolent resistance is a better way to make change. And, and the absurdity of that moment is that the American government provides billions of dollars a year to this autocratic regime in Egypt that is torturing an American citizen and putting ISIS recruiters in his cell because they want him to be radicalized because the radicalization of their opposition justifies their suppression and the billions of dollars that we give them. It's this kind of endless loop. And it ties back to what I was saying earlier, which is that it, it you know, may be uncomfortable for us to, 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 to reckon with this, but when we back a, a Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, who can chop up a journalist exercising the most basic, um, you know, what we would call, uh, you know, well, the most basic kind of freedom in the world, holding power accountable, um, when we back a CC who's torturing even Americans in prison cells, because we're saying we need the Saudis because they're important 
to the bottom line, frankly. It's not just security, it's also money. Mm-hmm. Or we need the Egyptians because they're a counterterrorism partner. We are saying that security and money is more important than the things that we say we care about. And why would we not think that everybody around the world, from the Chinese and Russian governments to the, the activists in the street, why would they not take that message from that behavior? Um, and and nine, the post 9-11 era has consistently led us to make those kinds of choices. And so to answer your question, yes, I believe that it's a strategic imperative. If we don't like the direction of political events in the world, this drift towards autocracy, then we shouldn't support autocrats like Mohammed bin Salman or Sisi in Egypt. Uh, and, and, and look, I've been inside. That's incredibly complicated to disentangle ourselves from the kind of codependence we have on some of these people. But it is absolutely necessary. You write that in the debate over whether to stand by Mubarak or, or not, that the Vice President Biden, Secretary of State Clinton, Secretary of Defense Gates, all were for uh, standing with Mubarak. And I'm sure it wasn't out of uh, personal affection for him so much as their view that this was strategically essential for us to do. Yeah, that was it. That was basically the argument. It was that combined with the fear of the unknown, the fear of change, uh, which I understand. Yeah. And that and that that turned out to be not unfounded. No, they would say we were prescient. Look what happened. The Muslim Brotherhood won that election. Um, but but I, I mean, look, we can have that debate as to whether or not we really, I think, you know, supported democracy because we ended up backing the coup that brought Sisi back to power. I think sometimes, you know, the status quo feels, in, in particularly in foreign policy, like something to be protected. And it leads you to not question the status quo. I was thinking this when I came on Axe, like the first time I did the Axe Files, uh, you won't remember this, but we talked about Saudi Arabia. Um, and I was still in government at the time. And I was quite critical of the Saudi government. And it made a little bit of news. Um, and then we went to, to Riyadh and we met with the king of Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman, who was the new deputy crown prince, who everybody was kind of welcoming as some reformer or modernizer. And I heard, a, I got an earful from some of my colleagues, like you created a lot, you know, Mohammed bin Salman is not happy about this interview you gave with David Axelrod. And, and I remember thinking like, this is crazy. Good. Well, I'm glad he, you know, he's a regular listener of the podcast. So I, I, I remember <laughs> thinking this is insane. Like they, these guys are so entitled that, that, that I'm not allowed to essentially kind of make passing comments about their human rights record or their kind of past uh, connections yeah. to extremism. On, on a podcast. And then sure enough, in the meeting, Mohammed bin Salman stands up and lectures Barack Obama after Obama pressed him on human rights issues. You don't understand our justice system. I can get you a briefing on that. And I'm sitting, who's in charge here? You know, like um, we like to think that we have this influence over these autocrats by giving them all this money in the Egyptian case or all this support in the Saudi case. But there's this kind of impunity that has set in. If we internalize the, the mentality we we're just talking about, that it's too difficult to change. The message to them is, well, then they can do anything, right? Um, and, and, and that, I think, is what, what is, we've made that compromise too many times. Even with China, we have gone to the mat with the Chinese over, like, their purchases of American soybeans in a way that we haven't over human rights. You know, yeah. we've, um, and so what do, what do they take away from that? They take away from that. They've- these guys care more about profit or access to the Chinese market than they do about the human rights and democracy they, they talk about. Take one other example, culture. So it's not just the government. When's the last time you saw a movie that was critical of the Chinese government? They don't make them because yeah. they want to get on all those Chinese Well, how screens, about the you know? NBA? Yeah, which I mentioned in the book, like this crazy Daryl Morey called me, the Rock, Rockets GM at the time, because he tweeted support for Hong Kong protests. 
Um, and, you know, they, they pulled all the NBA games off television, cost the NBA billions of dollars. The NBA is kind of in the doghouse. And the, the message is to all American companies, do not comment on our internal affairs if you want access to this money. And I think what, one of the warnings of the book is like, hey, we are already self-censoring here. You know, any American business, just like the American government that makes the compromises our values because we care more about money or some other interests, is, is beginning to self-censor in the way that all Chinese people are required to self-censor if they live in mainland China. So, so to me, like, we have to recognize that this is democracy and authoritarianism is a spectrum. And we assume that we're all the way on one end of that spectrum with democracy. But as we've learned, in many ways, we're not. We're still struggling here uh, to make this place more democratic. And I think if our foreign policy and what we stand for in the world is not reflective of democracy, then ultimately what you get is a world that is less democratic. We should point out that John Bolton in his book said that President Trump said to Xi, if you give us a good deal for our agricultural workers, we won't say anything about the million Uyghurs. Yeah. And, you know, he kind of said, that's, you know, that's your business. The million Uyghurs who are in concentration camps right now. So this just underscores your point. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Let's talk about you and the, you wrote about, you were a young political worker in New York in 2001. By the way, I should ask you about your uh, <laughs> political lineage as a, as yeah. a Rudy Giuliani uh, campaign aide. Yeah, well, I relived that. You know, I, I was, uh, in 1997, I worked on that mayoral campaign. I think Rick Wilson was the chief strategist. Sonny Mandel was my direct boss, kind of a, a legend in New York politics. Yeah. I was, like, I was, you know me, Axe, I'm a bit of a contrarian, right? And um, so I was raised in this incredibly liberal, you know, Upper West Side environment. Um, I wasn't like a hard, I wasn't like a conservative Republican per se, but Giuliani was a bit of a different character then. And he was, seemed yeah. like an effective mayor, but I had this kind of interesting political awakening on that campaign. It's fascinating because I was a tracker. And so I was sent to follow Ruth Messenger, the Democratic nominee around the city. And like the more I went with her to these neighborhoods that had been left out of the, the Giuliani good times, the more I actually started to question <laughs> the campaign I was working for more than Ruth Messenger's. Not entirely, I wanna be honest, I don't wanna take it too far, but it kind of planted the seed of, wait a second, you know, I am now seeing the city um, yeah. as a tracker. You grew up in Manhattan. Yes, and I, 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 I wanna acknowledge and did in the book, like my privilege, like my, yeah. my blindness as, yeah. as, as being a Manhattanite, uh, even living in this wonderfully diverse city, um, you know, I didn't see um, the places that I was going we to. Ran a, I ran a campaign four years later there for Freddie Ferrer that actually would have won. Yeah. But for the fact that on Election Day, which takes us back to this story, the uh, planes hit the World Trade Center and the whole world changed and that the politics of New York changed. And, and Rudy, who actually had been falling out of favor for just the reason that you suggest, that yeah. people realized that there was a tale of two cities in yeah. New York. Yeah. He was back in favor because you now he's America's mayor and he's he's at the on the point in this w war on terror. And, um, uh, and you uh, were moved to 
essentially enlist your talents in the post 9-11 year and you head down to Washington. What were, what were your thoughts at that time? Well, it's interesting. My political evolution had already kind of begun. I was working for, you know, Diana Reyna, who was a community organizer running for a Brooklyn city council seat. So I'd, I'd already come pretty far from Giuliani when I saw the uh, 9-11 attacks kind of play out right in front of me because I had the kind of Brooklyn waterfront view. Um, and my impulse was that everything in my life was going to be different after that. Nothing could be the same. You know, I was trying to be a writer at the time, um, which I guess now I'm working my way back towards 20 years later. You're doing all um, right. Yeah. And that how could I sit in my you know, Queen's apartment and write short stories when I had just seen that? You know, I wanted, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just wanted to be a part of what came next. I, I, I frankly thought I was going to just go be a journalist and try to write about American foreign policy. And I was kind of directed into speech writing as a, as a way to learn about foreign policy and the right. And the guy I went to work for, Lee Hamilton, gets appointed co-chair of the 9-11 Commission. Um, and that kind of sends me on my way in terms of uh, my career trajectory. Um, but again, the, 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 the basic motivation I had was just a feeling that you know, my country had been attacked. This event had kind of exploded every expectation I had about, really about you know, history having ended, right? The idea that the big questions had been settled. And I wanted to be a part of what happened next. And as I, as I say to young people these days, now that I've entered, you know, middle age myself, is um, I never had a plan to work in the White House. I mean, that would have been insane to me I, if I had a plan to work in the White House and never would have made it there. You know, I just followed kind of my interests and my passion and my and, attraction and, to community organizers running for office. Yeah, exactly. Right, <laughs> and end up working for this community organizer from Chicago. You know, <laughs> but. You did support aggressive action, and yes. you did initially support the war, fair yes. to say? Yeah. And now you write very, very critically about it as one of the things that really undermine America's place in the world and standing in the world. And it has become a sort of propaganda thing for... But here we are, you know, 20 years later, and we're still, you know, we're just now uh, withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. What has this done to us in the world and here at home? Well, look, in, in the world, you know, I think, again, it's, we, this hyper-prioritization of security has both led us to compromise our values in some of the relationships we talked about and also been something of a, a template or, or justification. Every autocratic leader I talk about in this book, the Chinese call the internment of a million Uyghurs the people's war on terror. You know, um, Viktor Orban puts migrants in, in barbed wire because you know, he uses a framework of, of there would be terrorists. I think what's more interesting and less appreciated is what it's done to us at home. And I had this experience, you know, because basically what happened is Bush sent us to war and kind of made our whole national purpose, this war against terrorism. And he said it was going to be on par with the fight against fascism and communism. And that's how big a national project it was. We organized the whole government, trillions of dollars. We spent over $6 trillion in this project uh, since 9-11. But it also created this us versus them politics acts where the them started as the terrorists. That kind of bled into Islam, but then it bled into a black president. It bled into a rotating cast of characters, immigrants at our southern border, the same kind of post 9-11 xenophobia. I experienced this in government acts when, you know, I'm sure this happened to you, you start to become the subject of kind of right-wing attention and yeah. vitriol. And they're using the same language about you. I mean, look at a Michael Flynn, right? He would describe you and me probably in the same language he would use to describe, you know, radical Islam or terrorists. I, I think the weaponization of, that, of, of identity in that way um, did something incredibly corrosive. And I also think, on one example I give in the book is that, you know, when we tried to, to release 
a few Uyghurs who were innocent at Guantanamo Bay. They were not terrorists, right? Yeah, I remember it well. Tried to release some Uyghurs in, in Northern Virginia to close Gitmo. And Congress went nuts. That, and that's why we ended up not being able to close Gitmo, because they imposed all these restrictions. And, and Lindsey Graham and Joe Lieberman write a letter. It's kind of an op- apocalyptic letter saying the Uyghurs can't be you know, released in America because they have extremist views that cannot assimilate into our, our society. Uncomfortably, that's the same language that the Chinese are using right now, right? So there's that component of it. There's also the component of, and, and you were on the front lines of this, but if you watched Fox News or listened to talk radio during the Bush years, you were promised big victories. You know, we're going to win. We're always right on the doorstep of winning something huge. And then suddenly Barack Obama gets elected. And when superpowers don't win wars, people go to look for an enemy within to blame. That's just history, right? We did not win these post-9-11 years. We can argue about whether we, quote unquote, lost them or not, but we didn't win something particular other than, you know, we took out bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, which I, I would say is kind of the, what we had to do. And I think that a lot of the anger is, 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 you know, people looking for someone to blame, like a scapegoat, um, you know, uh, the, the people who are inauthentically patriotic. Look at how the battles for, over American identity have gotten so much more intense since 9-11. And look at what it's done to our politics. I think that's the thing that we don't fully appreciate, including the media, the media machinery on the right that was built after 9-11 that has since been repurposed now. Instead of, you know, instead of scary stories about terrorists overseas, it's always scary stories about, you know, critical race theory. Yeah, Yeah, critical race theory. That, to me, is the intangible thing that we have to get our arms around here. Yeah. I was there as you were in uh, 2009 when... uh, President Obama decided to surge troops to Afghanistan. It was a long, uh, rigorous discussion. And you you write in the book that you consider that as having been a mistake. Yeah. And, you know, having been there, you know, my sense was that there are not only negotiations that one has to make with one's allies, but within one's own government. Yeah. And that's what he, you know, he was negotiating for an end to the engagement and this was part of that negotiation. But we're, we're, we are now we are going to leave yeah. on September 11th. And the intelligence report suggests that it won't take long before the Taliban reemerge and uh, topple the government there. What is the impact of that after 20 years of invest? I mean, wh- how do you think that plays out in terms of our politics and policy? Well, I do want to say, like at the time, I remember us having a foreboding about this decision. I'll never forget, Axe. Like, I don't know if you've talked about this, and, and forgive me if I'm putting you on the spot, but I remember you showing me a memo during that Afghan review that Gary Hart had written. Yes. You know, really cautioning against doing the surge. Yes. Um, and what was interesting to me at the time, as someone new in government, is that he could only write, write that memo because he wasn't in government. <laughs> you know, like there's so much momentum inside the U.S. government from the military and from Hillary Clinton and the State Department to do this surge, that, that was always a lesson to me to, to not submit to groupthink, because I think, you know, that bears out as pressure in a lot of ways. <laughs> well, the um, other thing that Gary Hart once, in 1987, when I was uh, young in my business and he was running for president, we had a, we had a uh, drink at, at University of Chicago there. And he said, the most important thing you need to know is that Washington is always the last to get the news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is the smartest thing anybody's ever told me. And you really feel it after you serve there and you, you know, it is, uh, you are immersed, which raises one of the things that gives you hope and, and 
it's a little self-serving because you're one of them, but I think it's true, is that there is a post-9-11 generation of national security and foreign policy thinkers and, and members of Congress and so on yeah. who have who have a, more of a willingness to challenge conventional uh, thinking. And you, you write about that and you suggest that that gives you hope for the future. Yeah. And, and, to, and to your Afghanistan question, because it, it, it ties back, the, the two tie together. You know, it will be I think it'll be incredibly painful what's going to happen in Afghanistan. And it will be damaging to American credibility uh, if, as it appears, the Taliban will, if not take over the country, you know, it'll be just a deteriorating situation. The problem is it was that was happening anyway with American troops there. Um, that the decision we couldn't undo was the very first decision to go to war in the way we did. And then the decision to take our eye Afghanistan and go into Iraq, and then maybe the decision to surge. Like at a certain point, um, the American foreign policy apparatus becomes so invested in a project that it forgets why the project began in the first place. And the reason the project began in Afghanistan was we were supposed to go get the guys who did 9-11. And we did Which that. Which we, we did, yes. We did it 10 years ago. And, and, and I'm absolutely, as someone who cares a lot about human rights, it's going to be painful to watch what happens and, and we should try to help every Afghan we can who needs to leave and try to do what we can to help the Afghan people. But I do think this younger generation, what they chiefly understand acts is that it's going to look insane to history that we spent 20 years making this the focal point of our foreign policy, spent $6 trillion, started wars in multiple countries, um, kind of made this a top priority in all of our foreign relationships when think of what else we could have been doing from climate change to pandemic preparedness. And what, what, I, what gives me hope about this generational change that's happening is it, it allows us to kind of reset our priorities in the world. And if you look at the Biden team, one of the things I really do applaud them for, and I've been critical on other things, but what I really applaud them for that's the most important thing is the agenda is different. When they went to the G7, we heard about climate change. We heard about inequality and tax avoidance and minimum tax rates. We heard about... Um, anti-corruption, you know, an extension of Navalny's work in a lot of ways. Um, we heard about pandemic response and preparedness. You didn't hear anything about terrorism. And, and yeah. I think, look, that's not to say terrorism is not important, but we can handle terrorism without spending $6 trillion and making it the, the focal point. So I think this generational shift is going to allow for a much healthier set of issues to define what America is doing in the world. And, and in fact, you know, your, your, your old uh, partner, uh, Jake Sullivan, yeah, speaks about foreign policy in domestic terms in a way that I've not heard a, a, a previous national security advisor speak about the linkage between why we do what we do and how it is, what, what relationship what we do in the world has to what we do at home and that, that those two need to be considered together. And it's, uh, it's, it's thoughtful and it's powerful. So just to finish up here, have you crossed the Rubicon? Are you now fully a writer and commentator, or do you see yourself ever going back into government? Well, it's funny you mentioned Jake in a way, uh, leading to this question, because, you know, I remember Jake and I, as I write briefly in the book about, took this trip to, to, to Myanmar after the election in 2016, and we spent a lot of time talking. And part of the reason why he made the turn he did and how he thought about foreign policy is because he worked as Hillary's chief policy advisor, not yes. just foreign policy. And he'd oh, okay. seen like just the the sense of grievance in some communities in this country and the disconnect between 
how people in foreign policy talked about things and how the lived experience of Americans. And he kind of doubled down in terms of like, I need to kind of solve this policy puzzle. Um, and, and, you know, he and I actually ended up kind of co-founding an organization together that did some of that work. But then I found, you know, I think we each have to find our place. And for me, not only did I had this kind of black swan experience of getting to work eight years at the side of uh, Barack Obama and develop you know, a close relationship with him, as you did, um, uh, for much longer than me. But also I found that like my place in the world felt like I need to say everything I think, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I write in the book about realizing sometimes when you have a podcast and you're writing a lot and you're, um, I knew I was saying things that if I was near a tandem, right. If I was at, uh, you know, being nominated to be uh, undersecretary of state or something, <laughs> yes. I, I knew yes, that you I was, were creating a fair body of uh, work yeah. for people who would like to stop you. Exactly. So I, I, but I, I, so it's not like I didn't stop and consider that, but I said, you know what, like I'm, there's something that just tells me right now, the most important thing for me is to just is to have my voice and use it in any way I can. Not that I'm so important, that I'm like, but just that that's my place in the world. Like I want to to unencumbered by any concern about um, anything other than trying to be as honest as possible. And it's not that I'm right about anything, or you know, it's just that I, I want to try to. In, I think you'll see in this book, like this is just as unvarnished as I can be about what yeah. I think. Yeah, that's my role right now is and it doesn't mean I don't ever want to go back in government. At some point, I'd love to go back in the government. But to me, I'd like to go back to to do something, not, not to be something. It's not like I, I want I want there's some job I want. Um, I'd love to do. I loved negotiating the Cuban normalization. It's at some point there's an envoy needed to do a job or at some point they need somebody, some future Democratic administration doesn't have to be this one. Need someone to help them think through how to do something. I'd love to. to to do the problem solving that you can do in government, but in general, I, I, I think I, I, you know, writing and and um, and having a sense of a voice that is totally unencumbered by any other consideration. And I don't say yeah. that as a criticism for people going to government. I think it's just a reality that if that's what you're going to do, you, you you're probably a little more circumspect in some of your comments. Yeah, that's who I am, and, and I'm, I'm happy to be that. I have to say, being circumspect was never exactly your strength. No, it wasn't. So, it wasn't. But Ben Rhodes, the book is After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made. I really, really recommend it. It's You're a great writer. I always knew that. But this is really a thoughtful, provocative book. And uh, it's a great read and an important one. And it's always good to see you. And yes, I look forward to uh, seeing you soon in person. You too, Gax. It was great to catch up. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. Brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 